we kick off every project with a strategy session. Of course, every company calls it something different, but ours is just uh, a strategy and alignment session. The reason actually we use the word alignment is not only for us to get aligned with them, but oftentimes it's for them to get aligned with themselves. Um, and then we really make sure that everybody buys off on, do we understand? Yes, it is this customer group we're first targeting. That's our early adopter. Yes, it is this problem. Yes, it is. And kind of everybody has to awkwardly go around and say that they agree. Welcome to Growth and Code, a podcast where we explore the intersection of marketing and technology. Each week, we talk with entrepreneurs, technology leaders, startup founders, marketers, and sales executives about how they apply growth marketing strategies and emerging technology in their businesses. And now, your host, Ryan Reagan. Hey everybody, how you doing? This is Ryan Riggin back with episode six of Growth and Code, a podcast where we talk to entrepreneurs, marketers, technology leaders, startup founders about the companies they're building and the technology stacks that they're using to do it. Today's episode, we've got George Brooks. George is the CEO and co-founder of Crema. Crema is a technology and innovation agency located in Kansas City, and they help funded startups and larger organizations create and, and build products that will scale. And they do it by following the lean startup methodology. These guys are experts at product development, design, and most importantly, customer development. They will help you build a roadmap, identify your customer, and figure out the best way to build a product that fits their needs and that they will buy. If you're a startup founder or a product manager or CEO of a larger company even, and you're looking to build a new product from scratch, I would highly recommend talking to these guys. Without further ado, George Brooks, CEO, Crema. Really, really pleased to have uh, have George Brooks on the on the show today. George is the co-founder and CEO of Crema Labs. George, I want you just to give an introduction here to uh, our audience for those that don't know you. Yeah, so I've been doing uh, graphic design for the last what? Oh gosh, now I'm going to date myself. So we're well, not that bad. It's about when about 12, 13 years, and uh, really um, took the plunge about ten years to go out as a freelance. Um, designer, we'll just say that generically. And then it ended up that if you slapped UX on the front of your title back then, it would get you a lot of work. And, uh, that lot of work turned into, uh, me growing a team around that. And so Crema, um, actually formerly known as Crema Lab, but Crema now we kind of shortened that, uh, is now a team of, 20 um, that is made up of designers and developers and strategists and project managers uh, acting as a full product team for hire or a startup team to fire, hire, for hire, depending on who you're talking to. And uh, we help people launch products or take new ideas to market and uh, really focused on product. So our, our, our side of it is product and we get to collaborate with um, those that are trying to help grow those products. I love it. So Tell me, like, why did you start Crema? Were you frustrated with your 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 job? Were you were you? Or did you always know you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Like, was there one day that stands out where you decided, you know what, I'm going to do this, and it's going to be a, the I'm going all in. I wish it was that inspirational. I think um, you know some people leave to go do something based off of a passion or um, a circumstance or. Um, uh, you know, again, a dissatisfaction or they see a need and they jump after it. Um, mine was a little bit more circumstantial. Um, my oldest daughter, when she was born, was in the hospital for the first seven months of her life. 
and I was working at a, an, a small little agency and worked mostly for mission driven organizations about 45 minutes away from the hospital she was at. And on a pretty regular basis in the first couple of months, they would, uh, send me a message and say, Hey, you need to get down here. There's a good chance your daughter's not going to be here much longer. Oh and so, yeah. And so, um, I got very tired of white knuckling that drive down to, uh, to the hospital. And so I left the agency I was with and I said, Hey, this isn't fair to you. I'm never here. I'm always at the hospital. Why don't I set up a laptop and, um, and you can send me work. Um, and so that was the idea. Um, this is 2007, 2008. The economy is awesome right then. Um, and, uh, the agency that I was with, honestly, even though we were small, he really was not in the position to send me any work and he didn't really have any work to send me. But what he did do for me is he introduced me to a buddy of his who was working on an entrepreneur venture, had his own personal capital, and he was working on a project to build out a, um, a social network for aftermarket auto parts guys. And, um, I just dove head in uh, head first into that and kind of uh, got to explore what user experience and user interface design was for a large, uh, application. And then got to actually be the project manager for that as well, overseeing a, a team in India that he was outsourcing the development to. So, um, he allowed me to kind of take and run with that, um, idea. And so that got me into this world of building product. Uh, I want to come back to the fact that I now have three little girls, my oldest, who was the one that had all the medical issues, though she did come home with a trach and a ventilator, and it was an incredible journey. Uh, she's in third grade now, and if you didn't see the scars, you wouldn't know the difference. She's she's doing so awesome. She's a miracle. She's great. That's um, awesome. So was she third grade, is that what you said? She's in third grade now. She, well, she'll be going into fourth grade. So uh, it's That's summer right great. now, so she'll be going into fourth grade. So. Yeah. So she's, she's really, I get to measure how long I've been doing this by basically how old she is. Um, and, and I get to tell that story a lot too. It's a, it's a, not everybody always gets to jump out into something because again, they have, um, the means to, or the reason to, but more sometimes they're kind of pushed into it. And I will say, since I was a kid, I always wanted to be surrounded by creative people. I always wanted to be doing something creative. Um, and this idea of having my own studio was a dream. I just never thought that it would take, uh, going through something like that to actually make that dream a reality, but I'm very thankful that uh, I'm here now. So. Wow. That's a great story. Well, I, I mean, at the beginning of telling that you said, uh, that, that your story wasn't inspiring and I would call that about as inspiring as it gets. That's, uh, that, that's good stuff. You know, the, the, the circumstances by which people start companies are always amazing to me. I mean, mine, I, mine was an accident and, you know, it, I, I wasn't really intending to start an agency. It just sort of happened. And, uh, right. you know, so that, that's, uh, we hear that, that we hear that with agencies a lot specifically because I think that there's that that um, in some ways an agency this the way I describe an agency um, whether it's whether you're marketing or advertising or design or or development um, if you're offering a service um, services are, are the easiest business to get into and in my opinion when some of the hardest businesses to sustain and grow yeah. um because you know easily i can say you know what i have the skill base of a designer or i have the skills to offer you seo or you know i know how to do this and you're willing to pay me because you don't want to do it or because i can offer you um expertise there um that's easy to do early on uh, but then to grow that and to scale that is is incredibly difficult um uh, yep. and that's, that's the journey and that's the challenge we've all taken on in, in this agency world. 
Yeah, it's a trick when you're when you're dealing with something that's not, you know, when when, when you're when when what you give to your clients is, you know, more than a a widget. You know, it, it's mm-hmm. it's difficult to uh, it's difficult to repeat and difficult to scale uh, for sure. Um, but you know, guys like you and I, we, we, we got into this because we like doing the work, you know, that's right. Um, that's right. And I, I enjoy, you know, like you do, I'm assuming you really enjoy product and building product and solving problems. And, you know, I, I and, 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 you know, what you guys do, um, I think is, is something that a lot of organizations, you know, startups or big companies, you know, they, they fail to, or not fail, but they struggle with, with actually doing it, you know, and, and there's a lot of great ideas and they, a lot of people know exactly where they want to go, but they're paralyzed with, you know, how do we get there? Like they can see 10 years down the road or even 10 months down the road, but they don't have a real clear idea for how to, how to, how to write the first line of code or find the first customer. So, you know, you guys talk a lot about customer development in your your content and your videos. I, I love that. I'm curious, how do you teach your clients about that? Do you like give them Steve Blank's book and say, "Go read this," and then come back and talk to us? <laughs> we do recommend uh, Steve Blank's uh, one, of course, Eric Ries and the Lean Startup. Um, there's a few others, but I think, yeah, I mean, there is a little bit of like pushing them to educate themselves, but. Honestly, sometimes it's just about getting down to some very core, simple principles. Um, it's being willing to show something that's not finished. It's being willing to focus on the first customer and then the first 10 customers and then figuring out how to scale. Um, oftentimes, especially if you're dealing with a corporation or, or an enterprise, someone who is at scale already and in some other way, it's really difficult for them to think about how do I how do I start this new product idea? How do I think about onboarding a new customer base or even taking the existing customer base I have and moving them over to this new technology? Um, and it's, it is literally just focusing first on whatever you can do manually and then looking to automate that more later. And again, that's a lot of Steve Blank's language, right? Um, so, uh, we're very iterative. Um, and we really focus on that early customer adoption, um, listening to feedback loops, uh, but that's, uh, we try to keep it simple. Um, there's already, people have enough going on in life and enough going on in business. Um, adding a whole bunch of other structure around that is, is um, oftentimes a distraction. And so if we can give them simple, simple principles to live by, um, that, that makes it a little bit easier. When you're working on a project, who is the, like, who is the typical stakeholder? Are you dealing with a chief product officer, CEO, or is it just kind of across the board? You know, it changes a bit, but I think there's, there's, well, there's two different personas. Um, so we do have some entrepreneurs that we work with. And I say that with a, a bunch of conditional statements around it, uh, right off the bat. Um, first off, we try to target second time entrepreneurs. So those are, um, entrepreneurs that have had a, a previous venture. They have experience They maybe have some personal capital from an exit or from, um, from their connections through other capital raises. Um, and so, it's a second time entrepreneur that maybe has a little bit of experience, um, growing a product or growing a company before. Hmm. So that, that is the founder CEO or founder chief product, depending on what they want to call each other, but we'll call them the founder. There's, there is that role. Um, we do work with those guys and, but it is required that they have funding. We don't do things for pure equity. Um, the second, uh, persona is, 
I think you could boil it down to usually what it ends up being is that kind of product officer or director of product, product manager, um, someone who's focused or has been asked to go find a way to use technology to solve a business unit problem or to start a new line of business, um, a new line of revenue. Um, and so sometimes that will actually be the CEO, um, in, We've even worked with some CEOs of some pretty large companies where they've basically said, you know what, my company's running and it's kind of my job to be the visionary for what's next for us. And so I'm I'm even leading the charge of this what's next project. Um, and so sometimes it is a CEO, but more often than not, they've kind of put a chief innovation officer or a chief product officer in place to explore new technology ideas. We'll occasionally get grouped into the CTO world, but honestly, um, that's more IT and we're not really an IT company. We're really more on the, the software side. So, yeah, that makes sense. Um, how often, you know, you're, you're, you're an entrepreneur. How do you balance your, you know, your thirst for building products with, you know, building your clients' products. I mean, I think this is something a lot of entrepreneurs and guys like you and I struggle with. It's like, gosh, I would just uh, love to go spend 20% of my time building this, you know. I'm terrible at this. This is the worst. Um, so, oh, if we're honest. So so here's what I do is I scratch the itch in a couple different ways. Um, one, uh, I do try to give myself um, um, bandwidth in my role now is is um, chief product officer or CEO or whatever you want to call me in, in Crema. Um, uh, I allow myself to really think about Crema as, as an experiment, as a place to try new things, to, yep. to look at how we can to grow new ideas. So how we can train our people to be better. And so I do get, I do scratch the itch a little bit there, but that's more in, in growing the team, um, and the expertise in what we do. Now that being said, I still want to build a product, right? There's that scalable, like golden egg, right. That everybody wants. Um, so, so what we do internally, and I get to kind of lead this charge a little bit is what we have, we have what's called an innovation lab. Um, we used to do it as a dial the whole company down for one week, a year or maybe two weeks a year and don't bill any client hours and, uh, attempt to build a product. Um, uh, the first week that we did that, Oh gosh, it's probably been three or four years ago. Um, we built a little standalone product that we still use for ourselves today, but we never actually did finally commercialize it. Um, and then, but what we found was it was really difficult to dial down everybody at the same time and not really have the, all of our clients suffer. Um, drastically. So what we ended up doing is we spread it out. So what we do is every other Friday, uh, all year, um, every other Friday we dial down the entire company. Our clients know that we do it and the, the team has expectation of their time management that we do it. Um, that every other Friday we dial down and they can work on continual education so they can work on making themselves better, either learning a new technology or, you know, catching up on, uh, you know, video training or something like that. Um, or they can group together and we can work on building, um, a product together. So we've had a few product, um, prototypes that we've had come out of that, um, uh, both from a chat bot that we worked on, um, at the earlier part of this year to more recently, uh, a, a basic iOS build for, um, we'll, we'll call it a personal CRM. Um, and so we've, we've been working on these little projects. Now, oftentimes we use these as ways to test new technology out. Um, and so we'll use it as a way to say, Hey, there's a new JavaScript framework. Let's try 
using the JavaScript framework to build this new app or the, Hey, there's a new chatbot library. We'll, we'll use that to build out a conversational UI. Um, so, um, it's both. And I would love to figure out how to be able to invest more time into that. Um, and I don't want to ramble on too much, but one of the things that we're really excited about is in the next couple of years, we're going to be exploring this idea of a part of Crema, um, will will be really focused into a venture studio. And so a venture studio model is to say we would be dedicating certain members of our team towards either our own products or partnering with very strategic clients to, um, have an actual more stake in the game on the products that they're building. So, um, that's going to come in the next couple of years. We're working on trying to figure out how to fund it and how to set structure around it. But, uh, we're really excited about that opportunity. That is really exciting. We're, we're experimenting with something similar. I mean, we've had some of the, you know, some of the more fruitful client relationships that we've had are ones where, you know, we have skin in in the outcome. Uh, Right. And that's, that's a good place to be because then I think in that scenario, you find yourself in a place where, where you, where you don't view it as much as a client uh, vendor relationship, but you view it as you're, you're rolling up your sleeves and in the weeds with them and uh, it can get really fun. And there's some challenges associated with that model as well. Sure. Yeah. How do you guys do that? I'm kind of curious because we're, you know, we're always experimenting with how to do that. And we've, we've come up with a few ways, but how do you approach that, um, kind of structurally? Well, the equity angle is tricky. Um, yeah, right. The, 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 the one where we've seen the most success is if you can tie some kind of a, uh, a measurable, uh, revenue target or a, a mm-hmm. lift in, uh, a, a given outcome, um, you know, like we work with a lot of e-commerce clients and so it's right. fairly easy in that scenario where we'll, you know, we'll be given one channel or say, well, you know, that they're not currently tapping, uh, and say, look, we're going to go and, and, uh, and, and, you know, grow acquisition and retention through this one channel and we get a big piece of that. That's, we have a couple of inra- arrangements that, that are structured that way. Uh, we don't. So do you do it on a bonus bonus? Um, uh, like, so hitting thresholds, you get a bonus or do you do it like a rev share where we'll take a percent percentage of it or the, both? The model, the model that we've done is the, is the rev share model. Uh, okay, cool, cool. We, we've tried, we've tried models where, so we do a lot of experimentation. So we're, you know, we're, we're an agency that focuses on, on growth and, and experimenting. So we're, we're like a, we're an optimizely solutions partner. We, we've got a pretty, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, a pretty rigid proven process for how to implement testing and how to, you know, how to, uh, how to, how to take the hundred ideas that your marketing and product team and CEO have for how do we, you know, increase our conversion rates. Um, and we, we've got a nice little process for how to apply that. And we've, we've tried, um, with limited success to figure out how to bonus our team on, increases in conversion rates but it always comes back to you know if we if we if we focus on the conversion rates then the revenue line will 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 go up for whatever product we're trying to to optimize so the the one that works the best for us is some sort of percentage of uh, of sales um, or gross profit Uh, gross profit's one of the ones that's that's easier to track yeah Um, and now do you guys do that on top is that like a 
uh, top line p- piece where you say well, this was above and beyond, or is it something where there's a uh, cover the cost or cover this, you know, this is our rate in, as a whole plus this additional cost. That's something we've kind of tried to f- figure out, like, is the value add enough that if we hit those metrics, it's on top of it? Or is it just a we're only getting paid if you get paid kind of thing? Um, One thing we've seen that works is to give the client two options, you know, and, and to say, Let's, here's here's how we would price this engagement normally. So, you know, and our, our, our model is a we always start with the project and then we follow it with a retainer. Um, mm. And most of the project work that we do is like infrastructure and setup and try and getting the client to a position where they can actually, you know, track the things that they need to track or, you know, get their stack to a place that makes sense for them. So like take a SaaS client, for example, like, you know, a lot of SaaS clients won't have, um, you know, won't have any sort of acquisition retention reporting or, you know, we'll we'll set up like a, uh, like a bare metrics for someone so that we can really, really dive into the math and see what's going on uh, or set up their, you know, optimizely or testing frameworks or Google analytics or whatever tool that needs to be set up. And then we'll, um, you know, once a project is in place, or, uh, we'll, we'll follow that with a uh, retainer that consists of, um, you know, basically the hours. We, we call them campaign hours internally, but, you know, a campaign hour could be a, uh, an hour of one of our team members' time yeah. uh, focused on, uh, on trying to solve whatever the conversion metric is that the client's trying to solve, whether it's, you know, improved retention rates or... Uh, you know, uh, on-page conversion rates or the pricing page, whatever it is. And, and then to answer your question, we'll give the clients two options and say, you know, this is how we would normally price this, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll discount that if, um, you know, if we can have X percentage of the upside. It's a little easier for uh, e-commerce clients, we've found. The SaaS mm-hmm, model is a tricky one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. It's even harder when you're only building product. Um, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. they're... <laughs> Oh yes. Um, yeah, but that's, that's, that's interesting. We've, I mean, we do, we've done both equity. We've done a, a few kind of bonus, um, uh, pieces, the equity, we, we basically do it as a, um, only a deferral of profit. Um, so because that's a, such a, that's the riskiest model, if you will. Yeah. Um, we do it and we haven't lost money on it yet, uh, which is good because most of those clients have gone on to be successful. Um, but it's really based off of we'll defer profits because of course that's where, we're making our money. Um, but you have to cover help cover our costs because really when, you know, my guys still expect to get paid. So, yeah. um, yeah, I think there's a lot of, a lot of agencies trying to crack this nut of, you know, the performance-based marketing, that term's been around for mm-hmm. years, you know, and you have mm-hmm. the, the, the affiliate marketing space and all that. But when you're really, when, when you're really rolling up your sleeves and like becoming part of the client's team, it's, um, you know, it's a bit different bag. Yeah, I agree completely. So how do you guys, when you're working with a new client, one of the tendencies, and not just with clients, with any anyone who's wanting to start a business or launch a product, I, I feel the tendency to overcomplicate. And I do this myself. I'm the worst at it. But how do you, t- I mean, you can you can take any business and boil it down to like two metrics, three, right? Mm. If, if your mm-hmm. if your model is not explainable within you know with, with one or two key metrics, then you're it's probably overcomplicated. Uh, how do you how do you keep it simple, and how do you convince your clients to focus on, you know, this is the funnel. Let's optimize this, and and that that's it. 
Yeah, so we actually take them back through. So we kick off every project with a strategy session. Of course, every company calls it something different, but ours is just uh, a strategy and alignment session. The reason actually we use the word alignment is not only for us to get aligned with them, but oftentimes it's for them to get aligned with themselves. Um, So I think that's the biggest issue we see both with co-founders or with uh, product team members um, that are across an organization is that they aren't always on the same page. And so what we do is we actually use the lean model canvas as a, as a tool to kind of walk through to get a, a very clear understanding of who the customer is, the problem that we're solving, uh, the potential solution that we're using to solve that problem. Um, a good, clear one line statement about what, um, what the value proposition is. And then what are the key metrics that we're, uh, we're striving for? We do try to get it down to two or three. So that is, you know, we do, we know the top two problems that we think this is solving for a person. Um, if we can get it down to one, that's awesome. It rarely happens, but, um, top two problems that we're trying to solve. And of course, solution is always where it balloons. So for us, we're always trying to say like, and what are the the top three core features that are going to help solve that problem. Cause even three core features are going to be, have in innately a bunch of things that are happening around it. Um, so we really try to, to help them bring that down and we use the, the lean model canvas we'd actually do. We, we have, uh, a, a one blown up on the, our wall and we walk them through it on the wall, um, so that they all can see it. Um, that, that exercise takes a couple hours in the morning. Um, and then we really make sure that everybody buys off on, do we understand? Yes, it is this customer group we're first targeting. That's our early adopter. Yes, it is this problem. Yes, it is. And kind of everybody has to awkwardly go around and say that they agree. Um, <laughs> and I think coming, coming, it is awkward, right? Um, but it, coming out of it, it's, um, it's a really good exercise exercise because they'll even come back to it and say, well, yeah, but we have we can't forget that that's this is the problem that we're actually trying to solve, and maybe this other nice to have feature, or this other functionality, or this other channel for distribution is not going to target at that problem, um, or even at that customer. We're we're trying to go too broad too soon. Um, so it's it's getting everybody aligned on that vision, um, and then having it as a resource to go back to on a regular basis and say, are we still doing this? Um, is this, are we still in line? Cause some of our projects will be what three, six months, year long. We're working on a client that we've been working with for two years and we still have to go back and say, who's our customer and are we trying to solve that problem is have we gotten distracted by other things? Um, so, yeah, I remember one time I was, you know, I, if you haven't been part of a failed startup, you know, you're, you're, um, I think everybody's been been part of one that didn't make it, and and you know I've, I've got a story or two, and yep, yep. W- w- the the one that that sort of stands out for me is I was part of this startup, and uh, you know we made it a year, uh, and we built a really killer product. That the the shit part of it was we didn't have a customer, and you know I learned <laughs> <laughs> I learned the hard way, uh, but I, uh, I vividly, <laughs> I mean it's 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 it happens all the time, right? Yeah, it really does. I mean, and, and honestly, it's even harder for us because we are so focused on product. A lot of times we're leaning on our customer to say, you, you are bringing with either yourself or with maybe another partner, um, the understanding that there is a customer acquisition piece to this. There is a, uh, tell me that you've at least talked to two people that say they want this. And more ideally, tell me you've talked to a hundred people or a thousand people that say they want this. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we really have to trust the client in that. Sometimes the client is honest and accurate and you can tell because they go on to be successful. It's the ones that are truly unrealistic with it. Um, that, uh, oh man, it's the worst to be, 
Well, and for us to have spent so much time building a product that never really gets the chance or had the opportunity to serve someone. Yeah, that's that's frustrating. Yeah. Um, I remember in in the scenario uh, I was talking about, I I vividly remember, I'd say six, seven months in, you know, we had gone through a couple of iterations of the product with, with limited customer feedback. I mean, we, we, we thought we were getting customer feedback, but it was kind of bullshit. It was, you know, we right, talked right. to... We talk to our friends and our family. And of course, your friends are going to be like, "Oh, it's awesome! You know, you're, this looks great. You know, I, I'd love to invest." You know, but at the end of the day, it's it's a, it's a different thing than getting someone to pay for it and solving a problem. And so, I wrote on the board, you know, who pays and how, and mm-hmm. and I always feel like, you know, if I'm if I'm ever questioning, you know, a, a, a client's model or our model, then you know, the, the if you can't answer that question, like who is it that's going to pay for this and how then you're in trouble. I'm curious how much in your alignment sessions does business model come up? Like, you know, when, when it's a new product, are you, are you debating with the client? You know, is this a SaaS model? Is it an e-commerce model? Is it a combination? Is it free trial versus freemium? Uh, talk to me about that a little bit. I think with the founders or with early um, product ideas, <clears throat> yeah, that's, uh, that's a constant debate. And, and it, it usually comes back from, um, Someone for us, we do a lot of um, SaaS or kind of B two B solutions. So they're usually trying to kind of create a solution that's going to either, again, either scale as a SaaS product or act as kind of a middleman um, product. Um, and so like a, a lot of marketplace kind of a thing. Yeah. So we've done um, uh, actually kind of accidentally. You know, you talk about getting into things accidentally. We've done um, several products that were kind of two sided marketplaces. So the idea that you are the you know, like the Uber for this or the Airbnb for that. And it's the, um, really you don't have a product. You have a platform that's facilitating a certain set of data that moves between two different customers. Now the giant challenge in that world is the fact that you don't only have one customer base, you technically have two and they both have to be there for it to work. Um, Oh man, it's challenging. Now when it works, it's awesome because it, you know, it can scale, but, um, and we have one client that's doing really well at that, but, I think the, the, the reality is, is it is quite challenging because you're, you know, you talk about onboarding engagement for an e-commerce is really kind of a, you have a targeted customer, you're going after that customer, you're trying to make sure that you have the channels and the, the, um, the funnels to get that customer in. Well, you kind of have to take that times two, um, for different reasons, different messaging, different positioning, um, and different value propositions to those two different customer groups. One, they will get, so we, we built some hiring platforms, right? So it's one, you will get the resources and the, the talent or in the skills that you need. And on the other side, you will get a job that is going to be fulfilling and pay well and is in a, you know, a market and a, a pay range that you like. Um, and those, so those are two distinctly different messages, um, depending on which group you're trying to, to funnel in. Um, so that's, that's a challenging piece. Um, and it's something that we end up debating a lot at the beginning because we could say, well, what if we just took that and licensed the platform and let other people figure out those problems? So then it becomes a SaaS platform. Um, uh, so we, it's a lot of debating uh, around the revenue model. Um, but I think that's good, right? Because th- that is what is going to make a sustainable business. And so we do constantly ask, okay, this is great. But uh, same question, who's your buyer? Because your user may be completely different than your buyer. Um, and so um, let's make sure we understand who's going to be using a- this on a regular basis. But then who's actually going to be writing the checks? Who's going to be 
generating the revenue for you, especially in a two-sided marketplace. The person writing the checks is, in that case, the employer, you know, mm-hmm. the, um, the other person, you just have to have them there. Otherwise the employer doesn't want to come around. So, um, that's it. Yeah. That's a conversation that comes up a lot. How often do you get into the models and, you know, like it, how often do you get into the models and then, and then have the client look back and, and say, you know, holy shit, we, we just raised, you know, I'm pulling numbers out, but let's say a client yeah. raised a half a million dollars to build a, you know, an MVP, which is probably too high, but let's say they raised a, a round to build an MVP and you get into uh, analysis of the model and, and let's say it's a SaaS model and you start walking them through, you know, the, the free trial metrics and what the ideal conversion rates are and retention and everything like that. And, and, and they start to see that, you know, wow, to, to, to acquire a customer base that's going to get us to mm-hmm. profitability, it's going to take us 18 months and then they look at their funding and, and they're like, Oh my gosh, even if this does work, we don't have enough funding. Um, oh yeah. Right. I mean, we've had, we've had somewhere we, we kind of ran the numbers out and it was like a three year time frame, and they had eight months to survive. Um, and so the, the question always is then, okay, so you have, you have a few options. Um, one is obviously you can try to scale up and get more people, um, which is always still challenging because no one knows you exist yet. So to get more is, it's kind of a, a multiple of zero, right? Um, or um, you really try to narrow down on the value proposition and, and look at, can we increase our price? Um, so there's different ways you try to work with the model to try to say, um, is freemium even the right way to go? Or do we ask for money right up front um, so that we can then start paying, paying it back more quickly? Um, so there's different, we kind of try to mess with the numbers in that model to kind of figure out um, how, how long they can survive. Or the question sometimes is, maybe three years is okay. Maybe three years is actually the, the length of time that it will take to get full traction, get full return. But the reality is, is what you have. So let's say you did raise a half a million dollars to get to an early release, well, MVP or otherwise, um, you get to an early release, but the early release is a meant as a means to find traction to then go raise more money. I don't necessarily encourage that model because I'm, I'm not one to just say, that, that the value of a company is only in how much they raise, but sometimes that model is needed to get to scale. Um, and so, um, we do kind of say, well, okay, if you're going to go down this route and your burn rate is only X, then you need to start fundraising now. Cause you only have a six month runway and it'll take you six months to raise anymore. Or again, that's the challenge of working with, um, with working with entrepreneurs and founders, which is the reason we have two different client bases for big companies and small. But, um, we do talk through a lot of that and try to run as much of those numbers as possible. Uh, the successful ones, they know those numbers already. If we're honest, the ones that really go on to just blow it out of the water and become, uh, really wildly successful companies. The few that we worked with that were like that, they came through the door knowing that already. Um, and that just shows you the, the caliber of the person, which is why I say I, I, I usually invest in people, not in the ideas, um, because it was I'll get on a train with uh, with a person who's going to win no matter what um, over an idea that may or not might, may or may not have the right people behind it. So, yeah, you got to bet on the jockey for sure. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about the stacks that you put in place for your clients. I'm curious, you know. It, are, are, is it, is it consistent? Are you using the same tools? Are you, are you using open source technologies? Uh, how, how does, how do you decide what tools to use and how much of that is driven by the client? 
Um, it does depend on the client. Now we've in the last year, um, really decided to double down. We used to, we, so we started out our kind of initial technology. We've always been an open source shop. So we've, we've never really offered, um, you know, like a .NET solutions or Microsoft solutions, although that's all an open source now, but, um, we, we traditionally speaking were a Rails shop, a Ruby on Rails shop originally, um, which was kind of, you know, it's what Groupon was built on and, um, kind of some of the early, yeah. Silicon Valley products were all going um, Rails, and we got really excited about that. So we jumped on the Rails um, bandwagon. And let's be honest, those were the developers we were working with. It's a technology they knew. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, over the last year, what we've really doubled down into, and while we still will take an API in almost any language it's written in, but um, we're doing almost everything full stack, full stack JavaScript now. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, React is kind of the new. Uh, hotness in the uh, in the tech world, and so we're a full React shop. We actually went through and have cross-trained almost everybody. I think there's a few guys that are on a, like a couple legacy projects that are coming off of those soon, but they're almost completely cross-trained on React. So all of our developers, whether front end or back end or someplace in between, have full JavaScript capabilities now. And the great part of that is is that we can we can share resources across our team. So about a dozen developers on staff now can move between projects much easier than when, man, my iOS guy is not available, so I've got to pull him off of this thing and figure out how to put him into that project or the Android, the Java guy is not, you know. And so this, um, you know, using React and React, um, uh, React Native uh, allows us to really be much more flexible. Now, that being said, there are times when we still go back and use Rails. There's times when we pull in a .NET partner. There's times when we will do Angular if we need to do Angular because some legacy systems might be on it. Um, and there's times when we do pull out and say, you know what, the native iOS Swift build would be better for this solution or a native Java build would be better. But in order to create efficiencies, not only in our team, but also in our offering, we've tried to normalize our, our, our stack as much as possible. And JavaScript seems to be um, the, the not, you know, the cutting edge of the bleeding edge in some areas, but still the cutting edge of, of being modern browser based framework and, and native, um, with, with the new moon platforms that are coming out. Are you, uh, are you and your dev team, uh, contributing to open source projects and, and, and encouraged to do that? Yeah, they're definitely encouraged to do it. We haven't been able to do it as much from our, I should say from our, our, our hours inside of Crema, but we have a lot of the guys that will say, you know what we actually, so for example, we ran into some issues with react is a fairly new platform, right? And so, um, react, um, react native, even more new had some issues with one of its navigation, um, libraries. And it was this very widely accepted navigation. The community had kind of come around it, um, but it had some pretty big flaws and some limitations. And so one of our guys, um, you know, took a stab at really making a, a pretty large kind of restructuring of the order there and is, is trying to contribute that back into, um, to the library that's open source. So we, we do, we do definitely encourage it. We even have some of our clients. So for example, we have a, a project that we're working on with the St. Louis company right now that, um, they are, um, we actually will ask a lot of our clients, are you open to open sourcing the technology that we're building for you? That's um, great. And, um, they're, they're excited to do it. And so they're, they're kind of looking at a way for, to say, not only do we think it'll serve our customer base because it's a lot of kind of DIYers anyways for the platform that we're building, but also, um, we know that this will 
really make our company better in the long run. Um, so we, we love it when people have that posture. It is difficult for people to wrap their head around the idea of open source and the, you know, that, that it's not going, it's not going to destroy their company if they, you know, kind of lose that con- control, if you will, but, um, they really will still have the control to build their great product and allow other people to help to make it better. So. Yeah, I love it. I, I, you know, I didn't know what open source was 10 years ago. And then I, you know, I, I, I saw, you know, what 37 signals and the guys with rails were doing and yeah, you know, the way, the way they leveraged rails as a marketing play for 37 signals. Now base camp is, I mean, that's a killer story. Oh, it's brilliant. And I still think Rails is a, is a really great platform. Um, I, we just, um, man, JavaScript's taking over the world. So, um, yeah, it certainly is. Uh, I got some good friends that started Font Awesome and, and to see what they've done in the open source world is incredible. Uh, do you guys use Font Awesome by chance? We have used it. I don't know if we've used it recently. Um, uh, actually, I think actually one of my designers was referencing it just the other day. I was trying to look oh, up yeah. in Slack to see who, who mentioned it. Um, we, we've always got, everybody's pointing out different tools and different platforms and libraries. And so I know Font Awesome came up just recently. How do you know those guys? Uh, well, so I worked with one of them, uh, at a startup called local base and, uh, they're one of the guys, the, the two guys behind it are from Joplin. Um, and, uh, so I know them that way. And we did some client work for them on there. So they, they released a, a paid product. And uh, so we did some marketing work for them on their free trial funnel uh, for that product. And then they also, they recently in the last six, eight months did a Kickstarter for the the next iteration of Fun Awesome. And we helped them. With oh, that. nice. Nice. Awesome. That's really cool. That's really cool. No pun intended on the awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, they're good dudes. They're, they're very good dudes, but they, cool. I mean, it's funny, you know, they, they, you know, seeing how they've, you know, leveraged the open source community. I mean, that, that, the, the community around their product is, is insane. I mean, and I had really had no idea it was that big, but there's, you know, it's, 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 I think they had the largest, uh, the large, the most funded software product in Kickstarter history. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, there, there are definitely, there's places where open source stuff has a much better opportunity out, you know, something like that, where it's a community driven style product. Um, yeah. it even, it even, you know, leverages that more, uh, when you're getting into something like, you know, some of our clients are large scale it security companies and, um, it's a little more difficult to open source some of the things that they're working on. Um, though they are still definitely using open source technology. Um, that is, uh, I think we got a chance to talk to, um, one of the larger financial institutions in New York and the CISO, the chief information security officer there was saying that he had taken his what 900 person team, this giant security team and had moved them completely to the cloud and completely to open source and was just saying, no, we are, we are not going to invest in this server based technology where we, it's completely locked down and only we know it. And we're investing billions in some ways, um, into, keeping it updated. Instead, we're going to make a community amongst ourselves and a community amongst, uh, security professionals to make it better. So it was, I was impressed. Yeah, that's good stuff. Talk to me about the pivot. Like when, when, a, when you guys launch a product for a client and you get say a month, two months in and, and things are working, but you discover something that either could work better as a more efficient model, a larger customer base, what's, what's the process look like to decide with your client whether or not to pivot? 
You know, so we we're one of our big kind of differentiators as a development and kind of product agency. Um, one is is on being a design, very design focused and having a full stack team. But I think the big thing is transparency and communication. Um, so not only are our are, are clients in every daily stand up and every weekly uh, retrospect and um, and every sprint planning and, and backlog management. Um, so they, they, they know what's coming and they know what our goals are and they know these thresholds that we ought to be hitting. And so it's not often that they're surprised when we get to a point and we say, it's, it's not working. Um, we need to, we need to ask this hard question of, do we, do we either pivot the product or certain aspects of the product? Do we, do we need to pivot to the audience? Do we need to be start targeting somebody else? Um, we've had a, we had a product, oh, three years ago, um, that really had a, a great audience in the construction business. And one of the hard conversations we had was, do we pivot towards, open this up to other service lines or other, um, um, other potential customer bases that the SaaS model could have worked for. Um, now they decided to stick with it. Um, and I think there are times when, you know, that you grind through it and you go, no, I believe in it. And there's something that like blind passions, I can't take it away that that sometimes is, can work. Um, and it did work for them. They actually found a customer base and it it grew it. It took a little bit longer, I think, um, I think they could have possibly pivoted and gone towards another product line uh, or another customer audience model with the same technology. Um, but um, it's them being able to have an open conversation with us about that and, and, and vice versa. And that comes with the fact that we're very transparent as an agency. We try to come along, like you say, as a partner with skin in the game. Um, and it is difficult, though, because especially for founders, it's their baby and you, you're starting to tell Sam that your baby might be a little bit uglier, that nobody likes <laughs> your baby. Um, and for big companies, it's, well, you know what, if we're at that point and it's not working, let's not even worry about pivoting it. Let's just scrap it because we just, um, it was a failed experiment. And instead of looking at that failure as an opportunity to say, well, we actually still have something here. We have a lot of knowledge. We have, we still know we've, we've, we validated that there is a problem to solve. We validated a potential solution, but the solution either needs to be pivoted or we need to take that problem and see if it fits with a different customer audience. Um, and I think that's a little bit harder because for them, every change like that is like moving an aircraft carrier. Mm-hmm. And so for us, we have to be able to come along and say, no, it's okay. We'll help you like a speedboat around that. We'll help you to kind of navigate those waters of how we might pivot and change that. Um, sometimes I go for it sometimes I don't really, I mean, when it comes down to it, it's their money. Um, but, uh, we're, we're happy to ha- happy to have the conversation and push into, um, that direction, but it comes up, it comes up occasionally for sure. Yeah, it's a healthy organization that can understand the concept of, you know, whatever you want to call it, innovation or skunk works or, yep. you know, new product development. Uh, it, it comes with the territory. You know, one, one thing we hear a lot is, well, we don't want to cannibalize our existing customers. And I'm a huge fan of the, you know, I think Gary Vaynerchuk said, if you're not cannibalizing yourself, someone will, you know. Oh, you're always the innovation bell curve is is always kind of looming, right? I mean, you're always going over that next hill and it's it's how well you can you can really pivot to, uh, or not pivot, but to, um, iterate towards the next up curve. Um, and, and, and if you really dive into, it's funny cause if you look at some of the metrics of the growth curve of even wildly successful companies like Slack or, um, you know, Asana in the last few years of his experience and things like that, um, they, 
you, you dive down closer to their, their, their upward hockey stick and it's just filled with these lots of little dips, you know, and, and it was how they reacted to all the little dips. Now out from a macro view, it looked like they only had nothing but upward, you know, straight upward growth, but it was filled with lots of little peaks and valleys that are just kind of in, in, in amongst there and how they responded to those was really what made them successful. Yeah, we see it a lot with with conversion rate testing and experimenting. You know, it, it's part of our education process is educating the, the client that, you know, the the, the first experiment, it, it, you're not going to find a winner. You know, this is a process, mm-hmm. and you know, we, we might try five, six different things until we we, we figure out you know which one is going to win, and and occasionally we'll. You know, we had, we had a client last year where we, we we put this roadmap together for them, and literally the first test that we ran was a massive success, and everyone uh. on our team was kind of like, "Holy shit, that's the first time it's ever happened!" You know? <laughs> oh, I wish, I yeah. wish. Yeah, we but, had uh, a we had a project that um, we built out this platform, and we were iterating and getting feedback from potential customers. But like you said, the customer our customer was putting in kind of their friends and family and their people that of course were going to tell them that it was a good product. And, and we went to launch and, um, we just said, okay, great. You know, where's that, where's that first customer? And no one, no one ever showed up or actually I shouldn't say no one ever showed up. We started to see traffic coming to the site and like hundreds of thousands of hits, um, out of nowhere. And we, we went back and we said, well, where's all this traffic coming? And like, this is a brand new product. Where does all this traffic coming from? Or like, Oh, well we went and spent a hundred thousand dollars on banner ads. <laughs> and I said, you did, you didn't, we don't, we don't have, we don't have one customer. We don't have one customer and you just spent a hundred thousand. Who did you target? Well, we kind of, you know, targeted the Eastern seaboard and we targeted the, the West coast and, you know, they, they just, this huge blanket campaign, um, uh, cause they just thought they were going to scale from, from day one. And honestly, that company failed. Um, it, it, um, and, and it, it failed in kind of a, a, a glorious way, we'll say it. Uh, but it, it was, it was really frustrating because I thought, oh, had you have taken, maybe the month or the three weeks or the, you know, whatever that amount of time was and experimented with that conversion rate, understood the language and the onboarding and the funnel and the, the ability to make sure that we were getting the right customers, that we were targeting the right people at the right time. Cause it was a very seasonal product. Um, then I think we could have said, okay, now like Steve blank says now spend like there's no tomorrow to get more of those people on board. Um, but, um, yeah, too too soon, too soon. Yeah. So I, I love Steve. I think it was Steve Blank that said the you know the, the the goal of a startup is to to discover a business model. The goal of a business is to scale a business model. Right. You know, and, right. And I feel like there's a lot of folks that both from a marketing, sales, technology standpoint, but they're you know everyone immediately and I've done this too wants to go right to the scale. Like how how's this going to be a hundred gazillion dollar idea when you know, we need to figure out how to get, you know, get, get five or 10 customers and then we'll figure out how to stack them on top of each other. You know, our most successful client still to date. Um, and it's just because they really did, uh, go wildly successful was, um, endurance lending network. They were a, a small business lending platform in, in San Francisco, um, friend of friends for us. And we had the opportunity to work with them and their product owner, um, startup team. Um, they were funded enough to go explore this idea of building a very simple loan application process. And they got, um, I don't remember exactly, but it was taking something that was like a 20 to 30 minute loan process and got it down to like two minutes or less. And, um, and then in that loan process, it would, 
pre-qualify or disqualify uh, a potential applicant in the course of maybe like the first few questions. If they didn't hit the threshold of the loan amount that they were shooting for, it would send them off to uh, Lending Tree or these other platforms. Mm-hmm. And um, and so all they wanted to do was to say, can we get a hundred applications or something like that? It was so th- they had a good success metric that they were shooting for, a realistic success metric. We need to get a hundred to show traction. They got a hundred and more. And then they turned around to the investors and said, okay, we have a model that works. People want these, these loans. Uh, we're doing the underwriting process manually. We need to scale. Give us, you know, let's raise. So they took a couple months. They went and raised. They came back and we iterated on their product for about, oh gosh, 12 to 14 months. Um, and continued to just do ongoing releases, sprint by sprint basis, and really automated the underwriting process, automated the things that they were doing manually, but just slowly releasing it out, of course, growing their customer base. And, um, that's one of those where, um, I actually, we did have a, a little bit of opportunity to, to partner with them on that. And they actually, right as they, uh, we transitioned. So our model is, um, kind of our most successful clients will take where <laughs> this is, we've even shoot ourselves in the foot more where you have the retainer after it. Our model is actually to replace ourselves at the end of a project. Um, we actually start training and we helped hire their first CTO and their first engineers. We help bring them on board um, get them familiar with the technology and then we pass the torch and about six to maybe six months later, um, they, they merged with funding circle, which is a London based company. They took endurance lending networks, technology, um, took it globally basically and, and were worth a billion dollars about three months later. Um, so I wish I still had my, yeah, the equity wasn't there anymore by the time they got to that. So, <laughs> well, your point but, on uh, the start starting small is where it's at. I mean, I, I think right, there's a lot right. of this. There's a lot of this. Uh, you know, it, it's it's hard not to see Facebook and Uber and Airbnb and everything, and look at the, you know, even on the e-commerce side of the equation, you see these big e-commerce brands that are crushing it, or they're on Shark Tank, and mm. you know, you you, you want to, you know, I'm gonna take this e-commerce business and, and we're going to get to five million in sales in two or three years. And at the end of the day, like everyone wants to, uh, has a tendency to, and I, I love thinking big. I love like, you know, how, oh, yeah. how do we, how do we get, how do we make this huge? Like if you're not going to do something big, then screw it. It's not worth doing. But at the end of the day, I, you know, I like, I like to, to flip it on its head and think small, you know, like mm-hmm. for, with e-commerce, how do we like, let, let's, you know, if it's a startup and, and, and we're trying to figure out how to sell, you know, widgets or, or product on e-commerce, like let's find a way to sell one product an hour, you know. That's right. Or, That's right. or make one sale, uh, you know, or, or sell $100 a day. If you can get to $100 a day, that's thirty five grand a year. Then you have something, you know, then let's then we can triple that, you know. Um, so yeah, anyways. Absolutely. So how, talk to me about, uh, you know, you guys have done a really, really good job, um, you know, of engaging and, and uh, kind of fostering the, the startup community in, in Kansas City. Talk to me about the importance of, you know, just culture and community and the startup scene and the tech scene and how a city can, can, can help prop that up. You know, it's funny. We I remember you know, 10 years ago, again, when I went out on my own and I went to the first, um, it was the first startup weekend that had happened in Kansas city. 
and uh, I, I I remember being way overdressed. I had no idea this was like a you know this <laughs> this nerd this nerdy community exists for uh, with t-shirts and jeans and stuff. And I I now I've found my people right, but um, uh, and then I fact that I had no idea I was going to be up till four in the morning, you know, trying to hack together a product in in one day. Um, I I remember coming out of that thinking like this is incredible that these people would take you know their their good you know, valuable time and, um, and come out of the woodwork to, to collaborate on trying to do, well, not only do things together, but try to figure out how they can help each other grow. And, and I think that that's, that's always been a passion that helped me, um, that connected me to people that got me clients. Um, and so it was a, it was always kind of just a part of our DNA to say, that's how we grew. Um, so we want to be a part of that as we grow. Yep. And, um, and so things like, you know, um, Kauffman foundations, 1 million cups. Uh, I was one of the first, um, organizers, um, volunteer organizers for that. And, and Nate Olson who founded that or was what part of the founding team for that at Kauffman foundation is now on my team. Oh, um, and so Nate, um, came along and it's cool to see that that's grown now to what, 125 communities across the nation. Um, and, um, and at, at its peak here in Kansas city had over 400 people meeting every week, uh, Wednesday, uh, now, uh, you know, those things level out and it's, it's good. But being a part of the, the activities that were going on in the village when Google fiber came into town, I think that it's just that those, those types of activities allow, um, you know, it's, they could kind of, it's not, I don't, it's a little bit overused, but those, those kind of serendipitous collisions, those, those opportunities mm-hmm. for you to see where, um, we can help each other. Now, I think that there's a balance too. I think that there's a balance of, uh, uh being involved, contributing, and then really stepping back and getting work done. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something where we've had to figure out how to strike that balance. We've had seasons where we've been, uh, transparently over-involved. We've been doing too much in the community or been producing too much content or whatever that was. And we're not really focused on, Hey, you know what, this is, this can also become a distraction from the core purpose of why Crema exists to, to grow and to flourish and to, um, turn good ideas into great product experiences. Like we did, we were getting away from that a little bit. And so it is a balance. Um, but it's been a huge part of the why Crema grew. Um, and why Crema is not only able to serve Kansas city, but now, you know, over 50% of our clients are not in Kansas city. And I think part of that is because they're looking at not only us as a technology opportunity or service agency outside of maybe the very crowded spaces of Silicon Valley or, uh, New York or Toronto, Austin. And instead they're going, you know, yeah, cool opportunity to work with a uh, creative team in KC, but even more so, I'm actually really curious about what's going on in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always want this excuse to go fly to Toronto, or I always want this excuse to go fly to San Francisco, but more often than not, those clients want to come here mm-hmm. and actually want to come spend time in Kansas City and check out what's going here. And I think that's part, partly, again, why the community is drawing it back in. That's so. great. I feel like Kansas City is becoming a, you know, it, it used to, I used to call it the, the best kept secret in the country. And it's, it's, it's not that ca- that way anymore. You know, people are starting to realize what's happening here. Well, and we just recently, we just launched a new experiment. This is kind of a, our next big thing. And it's, it's not maybe a big thing for some places, but it, it is for us. In eight, in eight years, we've really been in almost the exact same building in the exact same space and crossroads down here in the arts district. And, um, we just recently, uh, uh, launched into a new location. So we're opening up a location in Lafayette in Indiana or in, in Indianapolis, uh, Indiana. 
Yeah. Uh, super exciting. We're really, um, there, it was really neat to go there and to see how it, one, it feels so much like Kansas city, same culture, uh-huh. very, very Midwestern. Um, but they do have a few things where they're maybe, uh, I'll say like a year ahead of us or a year and a half ahead of us with some of the exits they have with, um, um, their Salesforce acquisition there with a $3 billion Salesforce acquisition took and, and infused a lot of capital into the city. Um, and a few others, Angie's list and, and, uh, Rolls Royce is there and a few other things, um, have really infused capital into this, the city that has allowed them to take some risks and to try new things. But I think that that, again, seeing that community while we were there, they went, Oh, we're so happy you're here. We've heard so many things great about Kansas city. We'd love to come to you too. And so let's figure out how the how these two cities can collaborate and even in the last few weeks of us kind of announcing this it feels like it's just been this chatter of people coming back and forth between these two different communities so um again it's just another reason why it's no longer flyover country i don't think so that's awesome well i'm really excited for you guys and uh I think it's great. I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what's next out of, out of Crema. Uh, tell, me, tell, tell our audience where they find you guys and, and if they want to, you know, if they've got an idea or, or, or have funding, uh, you know, how do they get a hold of you guys? Yeah, absolutely. Of course, there's the uh, the website. Check out crema.us. That's C-R-E-M-A dot U-S. And, um, and then a few other places that we're actually really putting a lot of content out is our YouTube channel. Um, so if you look up Crema Lab um, or crema.us, we'll find it on, on YouTube as well. We put out a weekly video where we um, not only are kind of doing some behind the scenes of kind of what's just going on around here at Crema, but also some kind of tips and tricks about some ways that we think about really easy early customer adoption ideas, um, ways to prototype your idea, um, keep your costs low and, and, and experiment. We're very much about experimenting as well. Um, so definitely check out the our YouTube channel and our, our Instagram feed as well at Crema Lab. Um, so those are the kind of our three core pillars right now for where we're putting out content. And the reality is, is uh, just hit us up. My name, um, I'm George at CremaLab.com. Love to talk to you or um, Nate at CremaLab.com. If you have a something you're ready to like actually start talking about building, um, he's your guy. He's He can help you out. Cool. Well, I'm really pleased that you... Uh you know, you posted on LinkedIn saying, I, I want to connect with some some new folks. Uh, I'm glad that we were able to do it. It's long overdue. And, you know, next time you're, uh, we just moved into WeWork. So if you're ever in the neighborhood, give me a, give me a shout. Oh, I'll be over there. We'll, we'll grab drinks together for sure. Perfect. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. That was George Brooks with Crema. I really enjoyed the discussion. I hope you did, too. If you want to take a look at what they've got going on, you can go to crema.us or uh, go to YouTube and search for Crema or Crema Lab and and a lot of really nice videos about their process and how they get things done will come up. Uh, If you want to check out some of our other podcasts, uh, you can see them at measuremedia.com slash podcast or go to iTunes and subscribe uh, to Growth and Code. Thanks for listening.